We believe here at Bethlehem that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And therefore, we believe that the Bible is true. The word of God written, it doesn't contradict itself. It is coherent. It hangs together. It doesn't teach us anything that is false. The reason we believe this is that Jesus Christ himself has shown himself to be real to us. And he has proven himself to be standing forth from the word of God, the the son of God. He has taught us that the scriptures cannot be broken. John 10, 35, he has commissioned apostles and he has promised to lead them into all truth. John 16:13 and he has given us his spirit whereby we are enabled to see reality for what it really is as light breaks forth from nature and from history and from the bible and from our own consciences and all the possible ways of seeing it are boiled down to one way namely the light of god through the power of his holy spirit and so we have come to receive Christ's word as the very word of God, free from error, free from contradiction. And that's because God is true and not a God of confusion. But it doesn't mean there are no problems for us in the Bible, for us in the Bible. Because we are finite and we are sinful and we are culturally biased, and language itself comes to us with all of its ambiguities and uncertainties and at times maddeningly confusing similarities and differences. The same word means something different and the different words mean the same thing and we want to sometimes in conversations and disputes, pull our hair out because we can't figure out how the other person is using language. Just an example, maybe for the children, if you wonder, what's he talking about? If you take the word rock, I can think of four meanings for the word rock. There are probably more. One, a stone. Two, a kind of music. Three, what you do in a rocking chair. And four, an old-timey Movie star that none of you ever heard of, probably. So the same word can mean different things. Take the word, the Greek word, zelos. Either a bad meaning, jealousy, or a good meaning, zeal. So, if you read, let us put away all zelos. Well, the first thing you better do in conversing with the person who said that or the page that said that is ask, what's the meaning of zealous here? Not, I disagree with that because I think everybody should be zealous. Well, don't say that first. First say, do you mean zeal when you say zealous? I said, oh, no, I didn't mean zeal. I meant jealousy. And I meant bad jealousy because there's good jealousy. And so... I've tried to communicate to my kids over the years and to the staff over the years that before you start arguing with anybody, make them define their terms. Because most arguments just evaporate 
or either you come real quick to the nub of the issue when you don't immediately jump to disagreement and force them to say, tell me what you mean by rock or whatever. And then I'll agree with you or not. You hardly ever hear anybody do that on the radio. It's back and forth, back and forth, all these rough and tumble arguments. Excuse me, you guys are just talking right past each other. Would you just take a few minutes and say what you mean by the words you're using so that an, a, a sixth grader can understand it? Because if you can't say it that way, you probably don't know what you mean. Or the same words or different words, different words can have the same meaning. Here's the illustration I thought of. If an Englishman says, what I want to do this afternoon on this beautiful day is play football. And an American says, I don't want to play football, I want to play soccer. And they argue all afternoon about which they should do. That would be a wasted afternoon. Because the Englishman means soccer and the American means football. And they're just using two different words to describe exactly the same game. And so language is tough. Jonathan Edwards uh was a very bright young fellow at uh, Yale when he went there. And uh, he went there when he was 13. And he wrote uh, things called miscellanies, his journals. And in one of them, he was wrestling with himself, and I suppose something he'd read, about whether the term moral duty is a redundancy, which he argued it was. There is no other kind of duty than a moral duty. And if something is a duty, it is moral. And so the term moral duty is wasted words. Well, he got to the end of this long, elaborate thing. And here's the closing sentence. Oh, how is the world darkened, clouded, distracted, torn to pieces by those dreadful enemies of mankind called words. Sometimes we feel like Edwards when we read the Bible. They are our friends. They're the only things we have almost, or the most precious things we have, to communicate love and anger and guidance. Whatever you want to communicate to others, you're pretty much stuck with words unless you learn some sign language. And so they are friends, but sometimes they feel like very great enemies. Well, all of that to introduce you to the apparent contradiction, as you already have noticed, probably, between Paul and James in the passage that was read this morning and what I preached on last Sunday. And the reason I'm taking this interlude to deal with James is because it matters so much that we be faithful to all of Scripture and not just parts of Scripture that we may like better than other parts. And so I want you to wrestle with me this morning as to whether James, when he says we are justified by works and not by faith alone, contradicts Paul when he says we are justified by faith apart from works. And I interpreted that to mean by faith alone last week. So am I contradicting James or is he contradicting me? Am I misunderstanding Paul or am I misunderstanding James? How should we handle this? Well, let's make sure we see it first. Um, but before I quote those texts in James, let me back up a minute. Paul 
knew that when he preached justification by faith alone, he was going to be misunderstood. He knew that. He knew he was being misunderstood. He knew that his teaching was being abused, distorted. And we know that uh, because he refers uh, several times to the abuse of it. And we'll be able to see that in just a minute. He says that uh, some are saying, okay, if we're justified by faith alone, while we're ungodly, apart from works, then let's just sin that grace may abound. You look at Romans 3, 8, you see one of the quotations from his enemies. You might want to use all three of your fingers this morning to keep one in Romans and one in Galatians 5 in just a minute and one in James 2. But if you don't want to use your fingers, you can just listen. James 3, 8 says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported... And as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So he knows that he's being slandered by people who say he says, let's do evil that good may come. Because he's preaching justification by faith alone apart from works of the ungodly. And so a person could easily argue, if I'm justified already, if it's apart from works, if it's while I'm still ungodly, and if the grace of God is being magnified through this, then let me just go right on sinning, and grace will get more and more glory as it handles more and more of my sin. That's exactly what people were doing with Paul's doctrine. Or, Romans 5.20, you'll see another Misuse of Paul's teaching. The law came in, Paul says, so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, now that's a setup for a misuse if there ever was one. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So look at verse 1 of chapter 6 and see what they say. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And his answer, of course, is no. But now there you have two little glimpses. One from 3.8 and one from 6.1 in Romans of what's happening out there when the word of justification by faith alone apart from works of the law goes forth. Those who are not given the Holy Spirit to see the truth and to be gripped by it and to lean entirely, what faith really means, on Christ alone, will kind of find an occasion to justify their sinning and go right on sinning and say that Paul is endorsing it, whether he sees it or not. Now, I think... That kind of distortion is answered by Paul over and over again. And I want you to see how he answers it before we see how James answers it. Go to Galatians 5 with me if you'd like to see it in your own Bible. Galatians 5 
And we'll start at verse 13. There are, he answers it in virtually every book. I'm just picking out one that has a verse that is crucial for understanding James in relation to Paul. Galatians 5.13. He says, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So now here he's saying, okay, I've preached the doctrine of freedom. I've preached that you're free from the works of the law. You cannot, by the works of the law, get right with God. You get right with God by faith, by resting in Christ alone and what He's done, so that God gives you the verdict, not guilty at the beginning of your Christian life, takes away all your condemnation, forgives you from all your sins, and imputes the righteousness of God in Christ to you. And you're free. But now what, what does he do to guard you from, okay, I'm free. I'll just sin to beat the band. Well, what he says in verse 13 is, don't use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh, but through love, Serve one another. Now, what's he doing there? Is he... Now, he's not doing this, but I'm going to ask you if he is. Is he taking the beginning of the Christian life, the the base level of justification by faith alone, where you get right with God by depending on Jesus alone, and then laying on top of it a kind of second step Christianity called duty, work, love... And yes, you get right with God this way, but then you better add to faith as a second thing this effort of love or you won't get right with God. Is there, is there this, is a second thing being added here when he says, now serve one another in love. Okay, you got two things. You got faith and then you got serve one another in love. Look back at verse 6 of chapter 5, just up a few verses, seven verses or so. Galatians 5, 6. And you'll hear one of the most important texts for relating Paul and James as it's Paul's way of, of clarifying how works relate to faith in this matter. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. So putting a layer of circumcision on top of faith isn't going to enhance your standing with God. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Now, that is a very important phrase for understanding Paul and how he relates to James. Notice what it does not say. It does not say what really counts with God is faith and then an added thing called works of love. It says what counts with God is a certain kind of faith. Namely, the kind of faith that works itself out through love, so that the love becomes the evidence of the reality of the faith. That is so crucial. Because that's what I'm going to argue James 
means. What counts with God is not just any old kind of faith. Now, James has some names for that faith. Paul doesn't talk much about it. He just stays with the positive side of what it does. James gives names to it. Three names. We'll get there in a minute. But the faith that Paul says cuts it with God is a faith which then, once it is done and has engaged Christ for his righteousness and is justified, proves itself through love. That's the kind of faith it is. That's very, very crucial. And I think it's James' whole point. Now, let's go to James. So, turn in your Bibles to James 2. And let's see how James handles the distortion of Paul's teaching. I'm going to argue that James is not correcting Paul when he says we're justified by works but correcting a distortion of Paul, which you've already seen in Paul's own letters he is aware of. Now, before I work my way through the text verse by verse for a few minutes, let me make sure that you see the verses that I'm talking about that are a problem. The verse about justification by works in verse One, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son? See that? And then look at verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That that sounds like a disagreement with my sermon last week. Pretty straightforward disagreement, doesn't it? So that's why a verse like this has to be dealt with straight up. Okay. Let's go back to the beginning of the paragraph now. Start at verse 14. What Paul or James is concerned about here, what James is concerned about is counterfeit faith. Faith that produces no love. Let's see it in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? So you see his concern. Can faith of that nature that produces no works save him? His answer is no. Such a faith is not going to save him. What kind of works does he have in mind? Verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you don't give them anything necessary for their body, what use is that? That's, that's the kind of works he has in mind. I'm not talking simply about an avoidance ethic. You know, don't swear, don't steal, don't go to the wrong movies, don't dance, whatever. That's not the kind of thing he has in mind. He has love in mind. Love. Sacrificial, risk-taking, lay down your life, give up your extra clothing kind of love. So James's concern is... What kind of faith is it that says, I have faith and doesn't 
do anything like that. Just lives like the rest of the world. It's just as selfish, just as self-centered as the rest of the world is. Even if it does keep its nose clean on the so-called moral issues. Well, he's got some names for this kind of faith that produce no love. Let's look at them. Verse 17. He says it's dead. Even so, if it has no works, if this faith has no works, it is dead being by itself. So James says, if a person says, I am right with God, I trust him. Pastor John said, trust him, trust him alone and you will be justified forever. No condemnation. And you are the most selfish, unloving, uncaring person 12 years from now. James would say, you're not justified. But he wouldn't say that because you didn't add a second thing simply to your faith. But because your faith is dead. It wasn't faith. Here's another name for it. Verse 19. You believe, there's faith, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So the second kind of faith is demon faith. You got dead faith and you got demon faith. What is demon faith? Demon faith is intellectually orthodox doctrine. Did you know that probably demons are more intellectually orthodox than most of the people in this room? Because they're so smart. The devil is very smart. He came from heaven. He has taught his minions everything he knows probably. He knows the Bible cover to cover. He is a masterful exegete, hating everything he reads, and able to use it and twist it with one slightest little twist so that off you go, in the name of the Bible, to hell. So, believing doctrinal truth in your head saves nobody. It hasn't ever saved a demon, and it won't save you. And therefore, if you say, but I'm justified because I believed the doctrine of justification by faith. I believe that doctrine. And then it doesn't change your life. And you go on, live like the devil. Selfish, self-centered person the rest of your life. James would say, you're not justified. Third. Description of this faith. Verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless or empty or idle or ineffective or vain? So there's the third. You've got dead faith. You've got demon faith. You've got useless faith. So what you what you, I hope what you're getting is that James's deep concern here is exactly the same as Paul's when he gets to chapter six of Romans or when he gets to chapter five of Galatians or when he gets to chapter four of Ephesians or when he gets to chapter three of Colossians. It's exactly the same. How shall I 
teach in such a way that people will catch on to when the fact that when I say justification by faith, I don't mean dead faith, I don't mean demon faith, and I don't mean useless faith. I mean something else. Now, the way James in this passage attacks this issue is different than the way Paul attacks it. He's got a different audience, he's got a different concern, and he's going to use language that is very different and on the face of it, blatantly contradictory. And you've got to decide whether the different angle, the different audience, the different concern, and the way he's coming at it is in fact contradictory or not. I don't think it is, but let me try to walk through it with you. In the use of Abraham. Both of them use Abraham. All right. Last week we saw Abraham. Romans chapter 4. Verses 1 to 5. Abraham becomes the issue. In fact, he's the issue all through chapter 4. How did Abraham get right with God? How did Abraham get right with God? Now, James and Paul both cite Genesis 15, 6. And agree on it, I believe. Genesis 15, 6, you see it here in verse 23 of James 2. The situation in Genesis 15, 6 is that God has presented Abraham with the stars and your descendants are going to be like that, innumerable, even though your wife is barren and you have no uh, possibility of seed at the human level, just like we have no possibility of salvation at the human level. Because we are dead and barren. And so the only hope is the grace and power of God. And so Abraham believes in that grace and power. And it says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now James quotes that and he believes that. What is reckoned to Abraham as righteousness? Faith is reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. That's what he says. So. Paul and James agreed. Let's use Genesis 15, 6 to prove that Abraham is reckoned righteous apart from works by faith alone. James might be wiggling in his chair right now. Oh, I don't know if I want to say that because whenever I say that in my church, people always take me to mean something else. So I'm going to say it differently. But what does he do? Here's what he does. He keeps reading in Genesis. He gets to chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 1 of Genesis says, God tested Abraham. Tested Abraham. What was he testing? He was testing the faith of Genesis 15, 6. By a command to offer up his son. And now... James takes that up to see whether or not Abraham will prove his faith. And he says that in the proving of it, he was justified by works. That's what he says. Now, what does he mean by that? When Paul denied that in chapter 4, verse 2, That we are not justified by works. What was he denying and what was James affirming? If we can clarify that, we may see that they're not contradicting each other. Here's what I think Paul was denying. Paul was denying 
that a man is justified by works in the sense that those works are the merit by which God rewards him or pays him the wage of justification at the beginning of the Christian life. I don't see anything in James that says he disagrees with that. That at the beginning of the Christian life, when God looks down and decides whether to pronounce you now guilty or not guilty, forgive your sins or acquit you or take away your condemnation, at that moment, at the beginning of the Christian life, Genesis 15, 6 holds sway. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him. That faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. But when Paul says that, he's not changing Galatians 5, 6. That the faith that justifies works itself out through love, proves itself through love. What does James mean? How does a person get right with God for James? I think the same. But the other question is this for James. How does one maintain an ongoing and final right standing with God? So 12 years, let's say, isn't that about how old Isaac is? 12 years after Genesis 15, 6, how does he maintain and warrant and have assurance that he is right with God and that he will be right with God at the end of the age? And the answer that James gives is he'll be justified in that sense. He will be continually be regarded as just by the works which show that he passes the test for the authentication of his faith. So you have to say, if you want to see them in harmony, that justification by works for James and justification by works for Paul are not addressing exactly the same issue and they don't carry exactly the same meaning. And I think there are a lot of clues in James to that effect. If you ask them, let's just do a little dialogue here with James and Paul. If you ask them, does justification as an ongoing and final right standing with God, not not that point at the beginning where you began, but as an ongoing and final right standing with God. Does justification depend on the works of love? What would their answers be? I think Paul would say, no. Not if by works you mean deeds done to show that you deserve God's ongoing blessing. And I think James would say, yes. If by works you mean the fruit and evidence of faith. Now those two answers, one was yes and one was no, both with a different qualification of the meaning of works, are not contradictory answers. No, justification as an ongoing declaration of my right standing with God does not depend on works of love. If works of love are seen as that which show you deserving of it, yes, they are necessary 
for that justification if you are understanding them as the evidence of the initial faith by which you are reckoned righteous? Let's try it again. Got two or three more ways here to see if we can say this in a way that will draw out its significance. When Paul renounces justification by works, he renounces the view that anything we do alongside faith is credited to us as righteousness. He renounces that. If you say, I got to do faith and then I got to bring another thing in alongside of it at the beginning of my Christian life and offer it up to God so that he will now credit me with righteousness and accept me into his favor and impute to me his righteousness. Paul renounces that. It's not faith plus anything at that initial getting right with God. But when James affirms justification by works, he means that works are absolutely necessary in the ongoing life of the Christian to confirm and to prove the reality of the faith. By which we were justified. And the way he chooses to say it is that that ongoing act of declaration is justification and is by works in the sense that the works evidence the faith and are necessary evidences of the faith. For Paul, justification by works, which he rejects, means gaining right standing with God by the merit of works. I'm going to say it as short as I can. For Paul, justification by works means gaining a right standing with God through the merit of works. For James, justification by works means, and he accepts this, maintaining a right standing with God by faith, along with the necessary evidences of the authenticity of that faith. If you lose the necessary evidences of the faith by which you have a right standing with God, you don't have a right standing with God. And therefore, the works of love are necessary as evidence of the faith by which alone God has reckoned you righteous. Let me try to put it another way, last way. When Paul teaches in Romans 4, 5, that we are justified by faith alone, he means the only thing that unites you to Christ is dependence on Christ. Well, let me say it with one more phrase. The only thing that unites you to Christ for righteousness is dependence on Christ. If you get anything, get that. I think Paul and James are in agreement on that. The only thing that unites you to Christ when you enter the Christian life is dependence on Christ. Dependence alone on Christ alone is what is credited as righteousness. Now, in verse 24 of James 2, when James says 
that we are not justified by faith alone, which sounds like an absolutely blatant contradiction of what I just said on the face of it. When he says we are not justified by faith alone, he means the faith which justifies never remains alone. But always works by love. The faith which justifies never remains alone. But always works by love. And James, risking tremendous confusion on our part, was willing to use the words, I call that justification by works. And created... 2,000 years of difficulty for the Christian church. So that Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw. I think it is a wonderful counter correction for a wild-eyed antinomian abuse of Paul's teaching. For people who don't see the correction in Paul himself. So let me close with this and draw attention to the glory of Christ in this way. The glory of Christ in the gospel. This is what, as I drew my preparations to a close yesterday, and I was pondering, okay, what's, what's the bottom line in all of this? What, where should I end and what is all this pointing to? I think the answer is both Paul and James want very much for Christ to be glorified in the gospel. And I want that to happen in this service. I want it to happen in your lives. How does Christ get glory through these two angles on the gospel? The glory of Christ in the gospel is not merely that we are justified when we depend on Christ alone. For our right standing with God. See, that is a glorious thing. And if I preached only that, it would be glorious. We are glorifying Christ when we teach that our right standing with God is by depending on Christ alone. And not the slightest whiff of work. The best kind of work. We're depending on Christ alone. And that dependence we call faith. And so when faith rests in Christ alone, Christ is greatly magnified as the ground of our justification. But that's not the only glory of Christ in the gospel. Christ is also glorified in the gospel when we see that depending entirely on Christ is also the power by which we become new, loving people. You see, becoming new, loving people, like James is after in 2.14-26, to becoming new, loving people, is not performed or sought another way than by depending on Christ. That's what results in legalistic Christians. Legalistic Christians can't see that the way you begin the Christian life and get right with God is the way you live the Christian life. Namely, by faith alone. 
So we get right with God by faith alone. We say, I'm a sinner. I'm ungodly. I have nothing to offer the Lord. If I'm going to have any right standing with him and be declared not guilty and the righteousness of God in Christ imputed to me and be forgiven and acquitted and accepted, I've got one thing I can do. Fall on Jesus. That's all I can do. I can rest on Jesus. I can depend on Jesus. I can, I can fall. If there's one thing a cripple can do, it is fall. And that's all that's required of us, is that we stop trying to stand on our own two legs and decide what's good for us and what's bad for us and how to get right with God and how to run our lives and just fall on Jesus. Depend entirely on His righteousness and His power and His strength. And then if you ask, okay, I'm going to do that now. Because I'm desperate and I have nothing in myself. I'm going to depend wholly on Jesus. And you do that. And I declare you are thereby justified on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus. And God accepts you. And then you ask me, now what do I do? Tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. And the glory of the gospel is that you go on living a gospel life. The same dependence on Jesus that got you right with God to begin is the dependence on Jesus that enabled Abraham to offer up the love of his life. I mean, how are you going to offer up the love of your life? How are you going to leave behind your family and go to the mission field? How are you going to deny yourself and say some bold word at work tomorrow? How are you going to let goods and kindred go this mortal life also? There's only one answer to that. It isn't works. It isn't works. It's depending on Jesus. He's my all. He's my all. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you. The way you become a loving person is one way. Faith. And James is saying, if I don't see the love, I don't credit the faith. And therefore, if you want to call yourself justified, you must have both the love and the faith. And I don't think Paul disagrees with that at all. And so I just close by saying, if you're at the beginning, depend on Jesus. If you're in the middle of your Christian life or near the end of it, depend on Jesus. And out of that will flow rivers of living water and love. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I think I speak for almost everybody in this room to say we want to be loving people. We don't want to be selfish people. We don't want to be carnal or worldly, all wrapped up in our privatistic ways of doing things without any God bearing on it. We want to be swept up into Christ and His ways and be the light of Christ in the world. And I pray that the message of James, with his insistence, that it's dead faith if we don't get there. And Paul's message that the only way to get there is by faith alone. 
that we will glorify Christ by believing these two messages and seeing their coherency in the word of God. Lord, teach your people. I've done my best and no Holy Spirit in and through what I have done and your holy word. Be the teacher of your people. I love the thought that our people are God taught, according to First Thessalonians 3. God taught. And so grant now I pray that we would be a God taught, God emboldened people. I commend them to you for your care. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.